Hello, and welcome to the BS with Friends podcast, a subsidiary of the Bader and Simon Gallery, scheduled to open in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2025. I'm your host, Tamara White, founder and board president. Today, I'm recording in upstate New York, where I've had the pleasure of attending a writer's retreat all weekend. And I also had the opportunity to interview Carolyn Dillian. Carolyn is a professor in the Department of Anthropology and Geography and Associate Dean of the Spadoni College of Education and Social Sciences at Coastal Carolina University. She received her PhD from the University of California at Berkeley and master's and bachelor's degrees from the University of Pennsylvania. She is an archaeologist who has conducted research in North America, Africa, and the Middle East. Her work focuses on using geochemical characterization, primarily through X-ray fluorescence spectrometry in the study of trade and exchange in prehistory and history. As a member of the Wakama Indian people, she is actively engaged in collaboration with Native American communities in the accurate, ethical, and respectful presentation of the past. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being here. And I'd like to start by asking about your research and area of focus. I notice it expands between the continent of Africa and North America. How did you come to studying these two regions? So my expertise is focused on archaeological geochemistry. So I am one of these lab nerds who studies the chemistry of archaeological materials, the belongings of prehistoric people. And my focus is on looking at the the geochemical makeup, basically the composition of materials like stone and pottery and in some cases metals and trying to determine what they're made of and what their chemical fingerprint is so that I can attempt to match those materials back to where they originated geologically. And that helps me understand prehistoric trade and exchange and how people interacted in terms of their economics on the landscape and maybe how they moved around on the landscape as well. So because I have this methodological expertise, I've had the opportunity to apply it on sites all over the world. My work in East Africa, working with the, the Kubifora Field School, was focused on looking at stone tool materials that were made and used by prehistoric people across the transition from hunting and gathering to pastoralism. And my work in North America has been looking at the belongings of prehistoric Native American people and how they traded those those materials to make things like stone tools and pottery. And then I've also been looking at the manufacture of brick in historic times in the southeastern United States. So the reason why I've worked all over the world is because my expertise is is more of a method and uh, and I've had the opportunity to apply that on sites all over the place. It's been really exciting. What drew you to this? Intro, like, is there cultural background or something that happened that that sort of piqued your interest in these areas? Well, I've always been interested in the ways in which different cultures interact. And when we're dealing with cultures in prehistory, 
even cultures in historic times when people had written records, sometimes that information is hard to get at through historical sources. So I've been interested in what the belongings of people in the past can tell us about how they were interacting. Were they trading? Is this an economic relationship? Or was it more of a personal relationship? You know, when you engage in in an economic relationship with someone, you also develop a cultural and a personal relationship with them as well. And the ways in which different cultures interacted and the ways in which we can see that through the things that they traded and bought and sold has always been a strong interest of mine. So I've been able to apply my interest in in materials and material science to answering these questions of what does it look like when two different cultures are interacting and how can we see traces of that in the archaeological record? That's so interesting to me. You know, I feel like it's a it's like putting a puzzle together in a way, you know, that you're looking for clues to sort of retrace cultural stories and, and the background. Exactly. And when we think about, you know, if we look at our society today, some of our closest political allies are also our closest economic partners. And so when we think about that in the past, you know, if we are looking at the materials and goods that we have surrounding us every day, you know, the clothes that we wear, the the food that we eat, the things that we use, and think about where those things originated, that also tells us about how our cultures have interacted and who we we talk to and work with on a daily basis. As an archaeologist, how do you view the history of North America's indigenous people? Well, over the course of my entire career, I have been conducting archaeological research throughout North America. My doctoral dissertation work was in Northern California, and I have conducted excavations throughout throughout the U- the US and the Northwest and the Northeast and here in the Southeast. And I'm very interested in the continuities between those prehistoric sites and the evidence of ancestors of modern Native American people and the people that are still here today. And, uh, and that's a very important thing to remember. The descendants of those who we see in the archaeological record are still our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends today. Over the past, say, 10, 12 years, I've been working very closely with the Waccamaw Indian people here in South Carolina, and that has included excavations on sites that were occupied by their ancestors. And in my partnerships with the Waccamaw Indian people, members of the tribe have been able to come out and participate in excavations and see the material remains, the belongings of their ancestors. And we ha- can have these great conversations about you know, the the continuities from the distant past to the present and how how we see ancestors living on the landscape and how that that then translates to modern members of the community's interactions with the landscapes today. And so to piggyback on that, um, several years ago, along with some of your colleagues, you created an exhibit that focused on the Waccamaw people of South Carolina. What came of this exhibit and can you explain what was included within that exhibit? Of course. Yeah. First, I should mention that the exhibit, which was entitled Waccamaw Indian People Past, Present, Future, was a collaboration with my colleague, Dr. Katie Stringer-Clary, 
who is a public historian in the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies here at Coastal Carolina University. And she and I, along with our students, worked with the Waccamaw Indian people and the Horry County Museum in Conway, South Carolina, to create an exhibit that focused on examining this trajectory of the Waccamaw's persistence in this part of South Carolina from the distant prehistoric past up to today, and then talking with tribal members about what they envisioned for the future of the tribe. The exhibit grew out of our longstanding partnerships and relationships with the tribe, starting back from my experience working with them as an archaeologist. And then we've also conducted some or created some other smaller exhibit projects with the tribe as well. So this is a longstanding partnership. And the exhibit at the Horry County Museum was just a natural outgrowth of that. An important part of the exhibit, though, and one of the, the main motivators for the exhibit is that the Waccamaw Indian people are a state-recognized Native American tribe, but they are not federally recognized. And that's a very important distinction. A federally recognized Native American tribe has the ability to create a government-to-government -government relationship with the United States government. They are then considered a sovereign nation within the United States. So they can negotiate just as similar to another country would negotiate with the United States government and can work towards, you know, education and health care and resources for their people. As a state recognized tribe, the Waccamaw Indian people do not have those same privileges. They negotiate with the state, but they do not have a federal standing as a sovereign nation with the United States government. So one of the reasons and one of the, the main uh, drives for this exhibit was to raise awareness within the community about the Waccamaw Indian people, their longstanding persistence here in South Carolina, and the fact that they are still here today. Many people in this area, when you talk to them, they don't realize that there is a vibrant Native American community right in their midst. And this was a chance to educate the community about the Waccamaw Indian people, about their culture, about their people, about their history, and to talk a little bit about what it means to be a state-recognized tribe that does not have federal recognition. We, Our timing was perfect on this exhibit because Representative Tom Rice put in a bill for federal recognition for the Waccamaw Indian people just before the exhibit opened. That bill is, is still pending. Um, it has, it has not received approval at this point in time, but we are hoping that at some point it will. And our exhibit was very successful in raising awareness within the community and teaching people about the Waccamaw Indian people. We've been really pleased with it. The tribe has been really pleased with it. And the exhibit has also won several national awards as an example of public education and public outreach. So I have a few questions. I was first going to ask how the exhibit was received by the university and the community, but it sounds like it was well received from what you have mentioned. But I'm also wondering what does it take to transition from being state funded to federal? And is there, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking, what is the resistance if other tribes are being funded federally? What is the resistance of including this tribe? And, and 
wh- why not? It sounds like it hasn't happened overnight. It's a length. It is a very lengthy process that usually takes place through an application to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And the tribe has been working on this application at this point, probably for 20 years. But it is it requires extensive genealogical research and extensive historical documentation, which is very difficult for a lot of southeastern tribes. Some of the evidence that is required for this requires documentation showing relationships with the government going back hundreds of years. But for many southeastern tribes, they were displaced from their lands prior to the creation of the United States government. So many of the records that that document their existence in this part of South Carolina are in fact not in United States archives, but some are in European archives and uh, and some just were not written down. So the tribe has been working very hard to compile the evidence that is necessary for these applications and that work is still very much ongoing. The tribe has um, has lived here in Horry County and there there's written records about the tribe living here in Horry County going back to some of the earliest explorers and earliest colonists who came into the coast of South Carolina. And then their ancestors in the 1800s, the early 1800s, purchased a large parcel of land in in Horry County in an area called Dog Bluff that created a settlement named for its founders. It's it's often referred to as the Dimmery Settlement. And this community, this small community, was a refuge for Waccamaw ancestors. So most of the Waccamaw tribal members today trace their ancestry back through the Dimmery settlement and this refuge for um, for Waccamaw people during the 1800s at a time when it was very difficult to be Native American in South Carolina. Is you know, coming from California, where you hear of multiple tribes and multiple, you know, communities, is the Waccamaw people the only Native American or are they the only state funded Native American group in, in the state? No. And um, and I should correct you, they they are state recognized, but they do not receive funding. They do not receive allocations of funding from the state. The state recognition gives them certain rights and privileges, but it does not involve a, a funding that comes directly from the state government. So there are several state-recognized tribes in South Carolina. The Waccamaw were, in fact, the first state-recognized tribe in South Carolina. And then there's one federally recognized tribe in South Carolina, and that would be the Catawba. Okay. Given the success of your previous exhibit, and I feel like the exhibit has sort of led or lended itself to this application process and people having this awareness. Do you have any plans for creating future exhibits? Both, I don't know. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Yes, in fact, we do. We have recently received some grant funding to create an outdoor exhibit on the tribal grounds. The Waccamaw Indian people do have have land near Aner, South Carolina. The Waccamaw Indian People's Tribal Grounds are near Aner. And we've been working with the tribe to design an outdoor exhibit on the tribal grounds that will include an interpretive trail 
focusing on the history of the Waccamaw Indian people. And there, there are a number of archaeological sites near the tribal grounds that allow us to talk about their prehistory and the ancestors living in the area. And it's actually not far from where the, the Dimmery settlement was founded in the early 1800s. But we're working with the tribe, and the theme of this new exhibit is going to be traditional ecological knowledge. So we will be focusing on the way in which the Waccamaw Indian people's ancestors used the landscape, used the resources, both in prehistoric times and up through history. You know, they were, they were farmers up through historic times. So we're going to talk about both their use of wild plants and animals for, for food and medicine. And then we're also going to talk about how they farmed the land into historic times. So the exhibit is going to include identification of a variety of plant and animal resources that are still found on the tribal grounds. There's going to be the construction of a traditional house on the tribal grounds so that people can come and tour that and see how ancestors lived. And then uh, there will also be interpretive signage throughout the tribal grounds that talks about the culture and tradition of the Waccamaw Indian people continuing through today. And one of the big events that the tribe holds at the tribal grounds is their annual powwow, which takes place the first weekend in November. So we're, we're gearing up for that for this year. And, uh, and during the powwow, hundreds of people to see the powwow, to see the tribal grounds, to celebrate the Waccamaw culture. And, uh, and we're hoping that when they come, they'll walk around and read the interpretive signage and learn a little bit about the Waccamaw while they're there. Is there somewhere that if people are not in the area, could can they go online to learn more about this or the powwow or to see photos? Yeah. the So the exhibit that is at the Horry County Museum has an active webpage that includes a virtual tour through the exhibit where you can walk through a, a 3D reconstruction of the exhibit and read all of the interpretive panels there. And that is at WaccamawPastPresentFuture.com. And then the Waccamaw Indian people also have a website that focuses on their tribe and history and has information about the tribal government and events taking place on the tribal grounds. And that is Waccamaw.org. Great. So to switch gears just a little bit, I read in your bio that you have a hobby of flint napping. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, that's correct. I had to Google this because I wasn't sure what it was. <laughs> and it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially making stone tools to better understand prehistoric technology. Is it like that you're kind of creating prehistoric tools to, to learn? That's correct. Yeah. How did you? How did I start doing this? This hobby, yeah, it's it's <laughs> interesting. Uh... Because I study the material culture of people in the past, I thought it was important for me to understand how that material culture was created. So there are other archaeologists who do this. This is not this is not solely me, but I learned how to make stone tools using what we call flint napping, which is the process of applying percussion and pressure to stone to shape stone tools like like knives and projectile points and spearheads, things like that. But by making them myself, it taught me to understand not just the the geologic stone that people were using and the the 
the features of those stones and how how easy they are to make into stone tools or how difficult it is to make certain kinds of stone into stone tools and the challenges that prehistoric people would face. It also taught me to better interpret those kinds of belongings, those sorts of artifacts when I find them in the archaeological record. So when I find a stone tool, I can now look at it and say, oh, I understand the process that these people went through in order to make this object. And I can also sometimes see when when someone messed something up, you know, I can look at it and say, oh, I bet they were really mad that they that they screwed up here, you know, or I can look at it and say, oh, I bet they were really happy that they were able to successfully make this in this way. And by by sort of putting myself in their shoes in that regard, it helps me to provide a more nuanced interpretation of the materials that we find in the ground. It's also kind of a kind of a fun thing to do, um, you know, to sit around and, and make some stone tools. And it can also be a really good way of teaching students about what prehistoric people were doing and the decisions that they were making about the materials they were using, the forms they were creating, the utility of the objects they were making. And it just, it helps students to understand, it helps me to understand, and uh, it helps to, to bridge that connection with people in the past. Do the students learn to do this as well, or is this just you presenting them with the tools that you've made? And how did- No, I, uh, I actually allow my students to do it. I make sure that they have appropriate safety gear. <laughs> We're all wearing gloves and safety goggles when we do it because stone can be very sharp. But, uh, but yeah, we, we do this as part of some of my methods classes and uh, students create stone tools. And then some of the lessons that we do, not only do they create stone tools, but then I ask them to use them for a variety of tasks and then to interpret those stone tools afterwards. You know, how useful were they for certain tasks? Can we see any evidence of wear on those tools after they were used? So we go through the entire process of creation, use, and even discard. Sometimes we'll do exercises in trampling of stone tools. So we'll, we'll use them and then we'll, you know, we'll throw them out on the ground and walk over them for a week and see if we can see what these artifacts look like after they've been discarded and people have been walking over them and how can we interpret the wear on them from that. So it's all about trying to figure out human behavior in the past and, uh, and what we can learn from looking at the things that are left behind. That's so interesting. And I think probably just a great method, you know, I think about when we're engaged in doing that, I feel like we learn far more than mm-hmm. just having somebody talk at us. So what a what a great way to interact with the students. Yeah. So thank you. This is all incredibly interesting. And then to shift gears once again, we have questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of each episode. <laughs> and the first is who your dream dinner guests are, dead or alive, as few or as many as you'd like. So I think I know you would probably love this answered from a, a historical perspective or some some amazing prehistoric person, but my my dream dinner is uh, is surrounded by close family and friends. I love the the connection, I love the the camaraderie, and I love the joy of being surrounded by people who care about each other and who I who I care about deeply. 
if I have to intellectualize this, <laughs> I can say that I would imagine our prehistoric ancestors also probably enjoyed those moments of sitting around enjoying a meal with with their own family and friends. And uh, and as we think about the present and we think about the past, it's important to to humanize those that we're looking at in the past within the context of what we're doing in the present. What song is the soundtrack of your life? <laughs> I laugh because I don't really have a good answer to this. My husband is a DJ. And so he is always playing music in our home. And I am really not into music. And, uh, and so he, he mocks me continuously for this. So I will just say that the soundtrack of my life is whatever is currently emanating from his music room. <laughs> Your husband's playlist, right? Right. Exactly. Yep. Or sparkling. Oh, sparkling always. Great. What social justice cause is most meaningful to you at this moment? Well, you're interviewing me today on Indigenous Peoples Day. And as you can tell from my other answers in this interview, a very important social justice cause for me is, is Native American people and their rights and um, their community in the United States today. As I mentioned, I'm I'm working so closely with the Waccamaw Indian people and their their quest for federal recognition, but Native American people across the United States still suffer from crime, from poverty, from a variety of social ills, from environmental contaminants on their in their communities, and still suffer at a much higher proportion than the rest of the American population. And my most important social justice cause, particularly on Indigenous Peoples Day, is the rights and equality of Native American people in the United States, which I would argue has not yet been fully achieved. No, and there's not, it, it's sort of mind boggling that there's just not as much focus or discussion on this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last question is who your least favorite Supreme Court justice is. I think at the moment, that's probably Clarence Thomas. Thank you so much for being here and good luck with the powwow and, and all the work that you're doing. And can you, you remind us the the website where people can go for more information on the, on the Wakama people? They can look at Waccamaw.org is the official website for the Waccamaw Indian people. And WaccamawPastPresentFuture.com is the website that contains the virtual exhibit from the Horry County Museum. And anyone who is in coastal South Carolina, I encourage you to stop by the Horry County Museum. It's located on Main Street in Conway and, uh, and check out the exhibit there or join us all at the powwow the first weekend in November. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to reach out and let us know your preference for flat or sparkling or anything else you'd like to share, you can find us on Instagram at Bader and Simon Gallery or online at baderandsimon.com where you will find information on current exhibitions and programming. 
Until next time, have a fabulously artistic day.